let's, uh, let's open the word of prayer. We'll get started. Lord, thank you for the gathering and thank you for uh, all the folks that uh, you have inspired to be here tonight and to uh, hear the history of the church. I pray, Lord, that uh, though we're not going verse by verse through your word, that you would uh, make this time a, a time of worship, edification for us and worship unto you as we study, as we think, uh, look at the mistakes and look at the good things. Also pray, Lord, for our children and campers who are out today and uh, ask for their blessing, uh, their protection, and that the gospel will be preached. May they come home different than when they left. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in uh, everything up to Constantine, the emperor, in 313 is the pre-Constantine church. And we've got a few more things to look at with regard to the pre-Constantine church. You having fun on this study? You getting some books? You reading some articles? You find a lot of stuff you want online if you don't want to buy books. But uh, I do recommend, I gave you that stack of books last week. I'm happy to recommend anything else I heard. Uh, Big Ed here talking about the the one by Bruce Shelley. Um, what's the, what's the official title of it, Ed? Church history in plain English. Church history in plain English. All the rest are church history in complicated Spanish. But uh, no, it really is a good read and uh, uh, wonderful. So if you need uh, if you need some materials, it's good. You show up and you go, hey, I read that. Hey, I remember that. Hey, I didn't understand that. And Lance really cleared that up. Or Lance, I understood it and Lance messed it up. Whatever it might be, it'll help you out. Uh, let's look at a review. Last week we looked at, after the apostles died, church fathers led the way. Men that we call church fathers. Some that were uh, mentored by the apostles. The church thrived, but it also developed a leadership crisis, devolved. Uh, the crisis in leadership caused it to devolve a bit. The foundation of authority, uh, which is today and began then, became the foundation for the Roman Catholic Church, became the Bible plus tradition. And the tradition was based largely on what church, these church fathers said. Uh, one of those was the, that the bishop holds the power of the sacraments. Remember, the bishop is the pastor. Uh, I am technically a bishop, but in the early church, after the apostles died, a bishop was over not just a church, but multiple churches, and now even a city. Today it's called, what, a diocese, I believe, where uh, you go to the bishop. Excuse me? The C. The C? C, C. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure what they're over. Uh, I, I don't know all the hierarchy in the Roman Catholic Church, but uh, yeah, it's another one of the... Uh, so you've got a bishop over a large area and then a sea over a smaller area and then it comes down to the priest of the church. So We saw that the Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper and baptism, was necessary for salvation, became necessary for salvation. It isn't in the Bible. And then uh, the purgatory, we'll see that. We didn't study that much, but that's another one of the things that rose up out of church history, whereas that no one dies and goes to heaven. There's a, depending on how good you were, how bad you were, you've got to spend some time in purgatory, that in-between place before you get to heaven. Nothing in the Bible about that, but that's what the Roman Catholic Church believes based on their tradition. And we've seen that that tradition, based on our study last week, began just with certain liberties taken by some of the church fathers. And we'll see later on more of this, that prayers directed to Mary and other dead saints uh, became uh, part of their worship, part of their, their way of, of communicating with God, of getting what they wanted, then as now. Christians were persecuted sparingly up to A.D. 50, not constantly and not empire-wide. So anyway, that's just a review of some of the things we looked at last week. Uh, some of the pagan views of Christians, we'll cover some of these same topics tonight with a little more information than I had last week. Some of the pagan views of Christians, and I'm giving you this to show you 
how Christians were viewed then is very similar to the way we're viewed today. Not a whole lot has changed, as we saw last week. Christians were believed to participate in orgies. It's not necessarily what we're believed to participate in today, although it's pretty hypocritical that some, some Christians are believed to be, we would say, immoral. Uh, and an orgy, that's supposed to be that, that those are things we don't talk about. Well, they thought that the anti-Christians or the non-believers thought that Christians were participating these love feasts, as they were called, the agape feast. That's the, uh, the Lord's Supper. They said, well, that's just a big orgy. And that's what they accused Christians of being a part of. Uh, they called Christians atheists, not because they didn't believe in God, but because they didn't believe in the gods. They're called atheists because they didn't worship the pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. They did worship the one God, and they were called cannibals, eating people because it was said that they ate the body of Jesus, drank his blood. Uh, this is a bad reputation for Christians. They were also called arsonists. They were accused of burning Rome, and they believed that the earth would end with the burning fire. They, they just... Had a bad reputation. Christians today, then as today, we are known for things that are just not true. And people are going to go with that narrative, and sometimes we're left to defend it. And here's one of them that rose up to defend it. Same as Tertullian. Tertullian. Uh, he was one of the big hitters, heavy hitters of the church fathers. He says, we are daily besieged, we are daily betrayed, we are raided over and over again in our meeting places and assemblies. But whoever under such circumstances ever came upon an infant wailing? He's being sarcastic. Assuredly, in other words, we don't come across, we take care of infants that are wailing. Assuredly, it is more cruel to drown an infant or expose it to cold and starvation and the dogs. Even an adult would prefer to die by the sword. What he is saying, he's saying, you Romans, you leave babies out to die that you don't want. We go to them if they're crying and take care of them. You want to make fun of us for being this? Tertullian is very sharp-tongued, a brilliant man. He's saying, you raid our worship regularly, but you've never even heard an infant wailing. You abandon living children and accuse us of atrocities. He says, for us to whom homicide has been once for all forbidden, it is not permitted to break up even what has been conceived in the womb. Prevention of birth is premature murder. They're dealing with the same issues back then that we deal with now. He says, as for your public shows, we renounce them as completely. We renounce them as completely as we renounce their origin. We have nothing to say or see or hear in connection with the frenzy of the circus, the shamelessness of the theater. Yeah. Some say that today, and they will say that just, we would never go see anything but a rated G movie. He's talking about what's going on in Nero's circus, the circus of Rome, that later began to occur in the, uh, the Colosseum, the killing and butchering of people. Uh, what people roared in approval over, he's speaking out against, and he has no qualms about letting people know how serious he is about it. He says, we pray for our emperors. And for their ministers and those in authority, for the state of the world, for the peace of the empire, and for the postponement of the end. Good guy, Tertullian. Make sure you remember him. Some other Roman uh, views of Christians. Uh, they're nothing but poor and ignorant lower classes of people, unable to defend their faith. They are superstitious, deceived people who offend the Roman gods. That's one of the reasons that when Rome falls, they will blame the Christians. And say, you Christians came in with your one God, and you caused the gods to become angry with Rome. And so that first one there, poor and ignorant, lower classes, that's what we're uh, 
accused of today, and many Christians cannot defend their faith. They, their, their defense is, hey, we believe what we believe. I don't need to defend anything. The truth is the truth. Okay. Well, you're also superstitious, deceived. You offend the Roman gods. It was said that uh, Christians seek to convert women and children, not intelligent men. That's partially true today. People who ignorantly rebuke Rome for its sins. So you can see that the Roman unbelievers did not like Christians. It's not like they just blew them off. They're going around defending the faith or just living out their faith is really what they were doing. And they got persecuted for it. Lucian of Samosota, who was a Roman pagan, said this, It is incredible to see the ardor with which the people of this religion help each other. They spare nothing. For these poor devils, talking about Christians, have altogether convinced themselves that they will be immortal and will live for all time, for, re for which reason they despise death, and many of them willingly surrender themselves. <sighs> Isn't that great that that's true? Isn't that great that that's what Roman pagans are, are seeing in, in our people? He continues, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they were all brothers of one another when they transgressed and denied the Greek gods and worship that sophist who was impaled on a stake. They received such teachings without any rational faith. Wrong, we do. Very much so on rational faith. Celsius, he had a brother named <coughs> Fahrenheit. <coughs> Sorry, there's no way I could avoid that one. Christians, he says, Christians do not want to give a reason for what they believe and use expressions such as do not ask questions, just believe. They are only able to convince the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. Athenagoras, who is a Christian apologist, comes up to respond. And he says, responding to the emperor, he says, Who of those that reduce syllogisms and clear up ambiguities and explain etymologies, that's what an apologist does, comes out and explains things, who of them have so purged their souls as, instead of hating their enemies, to love them? And instead of speaking ill of those who revile them, to bless them? So, if, in other words, who of us who would come out to explain to you our faith, who of us are guilty of the same atrocities you are? We love our enemies. We don't speak ill of those who revile us. Instead, we bless them. He continues, but among us, you will find uneducated persons and artisans and old women who, if they are unable in words to prove the benefit of our doctrine, yet by their deeds exhibit the benefit. They do not rehearse speeches, but exhibit good works. When struck, they do not strike again. When robbed, they do not go to law. They give to those that ask of them and love their neighbors as themselves. Folks, that is the greatest apology, apologetic for Christianity. And he's just saying, okay, they can't defend themselves. But look at how they live their lives. Doesn't that say something amazing? Uh, this is one of the this letters that we have from uh, this governor in Bithynia who wrote to the emperor Trajan. Uh, we, we have, this is outside biblical evidence that Christ existed. You know, you've got these people today that will say there's no historical evidence for Christ existing. Christians are made up group of people. It's all a bunch of stories. Well, we have extra biblical evidence to the contrary. And this is one of those. So Pliny is writing. He's the governor in Bithynia, and he's writing to the, to the emperor asking, what do I do with these Christians? And he's explaining how they act and what he does. He's wanting advice. He says, during the, or during the time of Trajan, who reigned from A.D. 98 to 117, the governor of Asia Minor, Pliny, who was the younger, he had an, one that was called an uncle, called the, the Pliny the Elder, but this is the younger, he wrote to the emperor seeking guidance on the appropriate punishment for Christians. We have no 
pictures of plenty, only Trajan, so I, I give you the picture. It's a good little snapshot of him. He looks good here. He says, in investigations of Christians, I have never taken part. Hence, I do not know what is the crime usually punished or what allowances are made. Meantime, this is the course I have taken with those who were accused before me as Christians. I asked at their own lips whether they were Christians. And if they confessed, I asked them a second time and a third time with threats of punishment. If they kept to it, I ordered them for execution. For whatever it was that they believed, obstinacy and unbending perversity deserves to be punished. So he's telling him, I killed them if they wouldn't do it because their obstinacy deserves to be punished. Trajan would have said, good, kill them all. Before long, Pliny continues, an unsigned paper was presented which gave the names of many. As for those who said, they were, who said that they neither were nor ever had been Christians, I thought it right to let them go. Since they recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation, made supplication with incense and wine to your statue, and moreover cursed Christ. Not one of which things, not one of which things, so it is said, those who are really Christians can be made to do. Okay, so asking them, you get the picture, if they renounce and they curse, he's, he's, they're not necessarily cursing Christ, but when they renounce it, they renounce Christ, he says they're cursing Christ. And, but the real ones would never do this. He continues, others who were named by the informer said that they were Christians but had ceased to be such some three years ago, some good many years, and some as few as 20 years ago. All these worshipped your statue and the images of the gods, but cursed Christ. They maintained, however, that the amount of their fault and error had been this, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and sing a hymn to Christ as a God, and that they bound themselves with an oath not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, nor deny a deposit when demanded. So what we're learning here is how the early Christians were behaving from this letter. That they existed, that they, he's naming their Christ. Christ, actually he calls him Christos. I've moved it to Christ because that's who he's talking about. He's, he's confused. They're good people. They do good things. Here's who they are and what they're doing. And again, he's showing, I don't know what to do with them really, except kill the ones that don't denounce you. He said, I considered it the more necessary to find out from two maidservants who were called deaconesses and that by torture, how far this was true. But I discovered nothing else than a wicked and arrogant superstition. I thus adjourned the case and hastened to consult you. So uh, these two women that he tortures, he's trying to find out everything he can. And he's at the end of his rope. Trajan, please help me. What do I do? How do I go from here? So these are some of the persecutions you'll see. I don't know how well you can read that font. Um, Emperor Trajan, 107-117. Um, Antoninus, 155. Marcus Aurelius, 166-167. Septimus Severus, 202-211. to Decius in 250. Galerius, 251-53. to Valerian in 257-60. to And Diocletian, 301-311. to uh, These are the various. The persecution existed, but... There was far more peace empire-wide than there were persecutions. So don't ever get the idea that early Christianity, people were constantly being beaten and killed. It came and went, and it wasn't empire-wide. Mostly, at least not up until Diocletian. And what you have there, the letter I showed, was just in a a certain portion, a certain part of the empire. In uh, 117, we know that Ignatius was executed. We looked at him last week, last time. Polycarp executed in 155. 
when we see the, the martyrdom of Polycarp, I'm showing you this again just to show you what real Christians were like back then. Um, the historical uh, narrative says that they tried to persuade him, that is Polycarp, saying he was bishop of Smyrna. He was a pastor of this church in Smyrna, which is mo modern Turkey. They tried to persuade him, saying, what harm is there in saying that Caesar is Lord and offering incense and thereby saving yourself? Polycarp said, I'm not about to do what you're suggesting to me. The proconsul said, have respect for your age. He was 86 years old. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, away with the atheists. As you know, that's Christians. Swear and I will set you free. Curse Christ. Polycarp said, 80 and six years I've served him, and he did me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king that saved me? If you vainly imagine that I will swear by the fortune of Caesar, as you say and suppose that I know not what I am, hear a plain answer. I am a Christian. These are heroes. These are heroes of the faith. The proconsul says, I have beasts and will throw, them to you, throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp, bring them. For repentance from better to worse is not a change to be desired, but it is good to change from cruelty to justice. The proconsul says, if you despise the beasts, I will have you consumed by fire unless you repent. Polycarp, you threaten me with the fire that burns for an hour and is speedily quenched. For you know nothing of the fire of the judgment to come. Why delay? Bring what you will. Isn't that great? Do what you will. So there's these ones. I'm not going to read to you all of them. These martyrs of uh, Vienna and Lyon um, that, uh, that follow this. There's all kinds of good stories. Vienna and Lyon are two cities next to each other in the Rhone Valley of modern-day France. Um, we read of a woman named Blandina was filled with so much power that even those who tortured her in relays in every way from morning until evening were faint and weary, beaten, having no longer any more that they might do to her, wondering that she remained alive, all her body being broken and torn. The woman repeated, I am a Christian. There is no evil done among us. In other words, the people trying to kill her, trying to torture her, are worn out. She won't die. Blandina, after whips, after beasts, after the frying pan... She was thrown into a net and cast before a bull. And after being tossed for some time, for some long time by the beasts, was offered up, the very heathen confessing that they had never known a woman to endure so many and so great a sufferings. Now, I think this is important for our day and age. I'm not saying that we're a week away from this kind of torture and uh, um, persecution in some countries, for sure. But what if, what if, what if it just takes you saying something like, Lord, it's just a word. You know I don't mean it. I'll curse you. I get to save my life. My family needs me. I can go home and I'll be good. You know I'd be lying. You could do that. Many did. We'll see what they did with them. Another one named Sanctus. Sanctus too endured noble beyond, endured noble beyond all measure, all outrages at the hands of men. When the wicked hoped that because of continuance and severity of the tortures, something unseemly would be heard from him, he uttered only in the Latin tongue, I am a Christian. Every time they hit him, every time they tortured him, every time they cut him, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And there was Perpetua and Felicity. I, don't, I won't give you it. I've got too much for them. I didn't want to get wrapped up in all of it, but you get the point. These are, these are the people. These are the ones, these early Christians, they believed, they got it. They died for their faith. They died in a sideshow, at a circus. So you see this timeline of Constantine period. I recognize the font is way too small for you. 
uh, but you've got 100, the, the timeline is 100, 200, 300. Right in the middle, that's what we've covered up to this point. These people, we've got after the apostles, we've got the Apostle John, the last to die, uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin, uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, different than Clement of Rome, who was back under John's day. Uh, this time split there, you've got Roman persecutions, the early doctrines of the church, Gnosticism, which we'll look at tonight, the canon of Scripture, which came together during this time, and the schism's basic divisions in the church under, you've got Cyprian, Eusebius, who was a church historian, um, the persecutions of these emperors. So a lot has happened, a lot happened at that point. It all leads up to what's called the Edict of Milan. If you know what the Edict of Milan is, it didn't make Christianity legal per se, it just put an end to persecuting of Christians. And this is going to be a huge... In 313, when Constantine becomes emperor, he defeats Diocletian, Diocletian's men, and he becomes emperor. And now all of a sudden, you're, you were a Christian all your days leading up to this. You were in danger. You could lose your life. At a certain point in time under Constantine, Christianity is now legal. It becomes illegal to be a pagan. And it's called Christendom. Now... What would you think if you lived in that day? You know the Bible. You're thinking, wow, yesterday it was illegal. Today our emperor is a Christian. Everyone's a Christian. What just happened? Okay. Kingdom of heaven has come. Kingdom of God on earth. Isn't that what Jesus said would happen? He did say it would happen. And then you've got this, this system now that today goes back and says, hey, that's why we're amillennial. Because a thousand years after that, Jesus didn't return. That thousand years, it's amillennial. Hence, we do not believe in a literal millennium. A thousand year reign of Christ. And it's just a long period of time. And some believe we're still living in the kingdom of God on earth. Don't you, aren't you glad you don't, you can't make yourself believe that that's true? If this is the kingdom of God on earth that began in 313, Count me out. He's not there. He never came. But some would say, yeah, he came spiritually. Or he's in us, and so he's in us on the earth, and we populate the earth. God, I hope you got a better plan than that. And he does, doesn't he? <laughs> we meet men during this time after Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias. We meet Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, Cyprian, uh, Gregory, Thalmaturgos, I'm sure that you read all of his works, correct? All right. uh, Anthony, Eusebius, Athanasius, right there in the middle and, and post-Edict of Milan. Some of the major churches that spark that fly up there, if you can't, the focus here, that, that white area is all water, so the land mass is, is in the gray. It's a rudimentary map from my old friend Roy Ledgerwood. Um, you see those churches that are in purple versus red are the main churches. These are the biggest, most influential churches. Rome. Carthage in North Africa, Alexandria, Egypt, North Africa, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Ephesus, the main churches. There's other churches, but your main bishops, you're going to have the, the biggest churches, the ones with the mega churches. These are the ones writing books at the time going, how to have a happy life. Best life now, the purpose-driven, whatever. Uh, as, as we mark today, the biggest churches are apparently the ones that God loves the most, most influential churches. Not necessarily the case. So, coming off... And we're not yet, yet in our timeline, but we're coming off once you're in a church and you have been persecuted. Say there's a terrible wave of persecution. 
And let's say half of the room has decided, you know what? God knows that I'm lying. It's okay to lie to the emperor and say, I renounce Christ. I hate Christ. Here's a little bit of offering for you and, and, and lie about it. And then this half of the room says, no way. But we're not going to renounce Christ. We'll die if we have to. Okay, so when that fizzles out, how are we all going to come back together? Is this crowd going to like this crowd? There's going to be some resentment. Hence novationism and donatism. So there's going to be a schism, a split. Uh, Cyprian in AD 246, a wealthy Roman converted to Christianity, gave his money to the poor, lived, in his, lived as an ascetic. Two years later, the people of Carthage elected him to be bishop. So he's bishop in Carthage. During the persecution of Decius, which is 250, the bishop of Rome and many other bishops died as martyrs. Cyprian, however, left Carthage to avoid martyrdom. Doesn't sound like a dumb thing to do. Hey, there's going to kill me. I'll leave and they can't kill me. Cyprian justified his flight based on Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you, Jesus said in one town, flee to the next. He felt his survival was more beneficial than his death. We might think that. That's not a bad reason, is it? I don't think any less of him for that. Novation. After the persecution had died down, Novatius or Novation, I should, I don't know why I put Novatius, a Roman presbyter wanted to be elected bishop of Rome. He believed the people who avoided persecution should not be readmitted to the church. So he was on this side. And he said, okay, these people, they're out. The, the, God put them in the, the shaker, you know, the panning for gold. They didn't pan out. So we're done with them. They can't come back. Cornelius, along with Cyprian, he believed the church should be merciful to the lapsed. He was elected bishop of Rome instead of Novation. Novation set up his own church with its own bishops. When you don't get what you want, you just go make your own church. And he made his own bishop. He called them the Catharoi, the pure. And so Novationism is going to be over in that part of the empire. The martyrdom of Cyprian in a later persecution, Cyprian felt this time it was appropriate for himself to die, and he died as a martyr. Whether you judge him right or wrong the first time, this time around, he said, this time I'm going to die for what I believe, and he did. So which church would you go to? How many Novationists are there, and how many Cyprian or Corneliusites are there? You know, do we show, I mean, think, both of them have a point. You know, one of them is very merciful. The Cornelius and Cyprian side, look, let's be merciful. The other one is saying, wait a minute. Anyone who would deny Christ under trial, maybe they're not really Christians. You know, both of them have a point. So you've got this split. What do you do? Well, they split what they did. One went this way, others went the other way. Gnosticism. How many of you have heard of Gnosticism? Today, you're mostly going to see it today. You ever come across somebody, you might ask them, are you a Christian? Go to church? And they'll say what? Well, I'm spiritual. Spiritual. That, that's, that's modern Gnostics. So let's take a look at this movement because they're still around. New Age movement. If you're, and I, right here, big Shirley MacLaine fan as an actress. I love Shirley MacLaine. She is an awesome actress. But she is the poster child for modern New Age ancient Gnosticism. Her and Gloria Steinem and, and Jane Fonda and all the rest of the cronies of that, of that ilk. The Platonic worldview, which states that there's a spiritual, there are things that are, that are abstract. We believe that. 
Um, Gnosticism results from a wedding of Platonic philosophy and Christian doctrine. In the Platonic worldview, spirit is pure, matter is evil. Spirit is pure. This is, I'm going to have this on the next few slides. Make sure you know that. That's what Gnosticism says. Spirit is pure, matter is evil. Now, if matter is evil, the chair you're sitting on is evil. The ground you're standing on is evil. The earth outside is evil. The very body that you dwell in is evil. It's matter. All matter is evil to the Gnostic. In this Platonic worldview, man is a spirit trapped inside of an evil body. Who you are in here, who you really are, you're trapped in that which is evil. So how do you attain salvation? That's what you're looking for as a Gnostic. I need to be saved from this evil body. During our imprisonment in this body, we should focus on the developing of the spirit. Don't know why I keep going in and out. It was this worldview that caused Plato to say that it is wrong to study material things in order to find truth. Because if material things are evil, and we're looking at a book with pictures or pages and letters on it, that's evil. We're not going to find truth in that. That's evil. Then you've got the docetics, the Docetists and the Ebionites. Docetists, I talked to you about them last week and the week before. It comes from a Greek word, dokeo, which means to seem or to appear. They believe that Jesus, because all matter is evil, and Jesus was clearly a historical figure, they believe that he only appeared, dokeo, to have a body. Because all flesh is evil. There's no way Jesus could be as good as he was and actually be real, a real human. Ebionites, on the other hand, believe that just the opposite, that Jesus was fully human and only human. So the, these little schisms are coming in everywhere. That, again, nothing's changed, has it? We'll, we'll argue about anything. Gnosticism goes further than docetism. Asking that if matter is evil, how could a good God have created the material world? Answer, in Gnosticism, he didn't. Their answer is that there's a long chain of sub-gods called eons, Uh, between pure spirit and the evil universe. A lower God, our God of the Bible, Yahweh himself, Gnosticism says that he is a lower, even a foolish sub-God. He created the universe. See, they have this big God in their own mind, not our God. And as the way they put it is, as the sun shines and has many rays of light coming out of the sun, you know, we see many rays of light, they're saying their God has many rays of, of, uh, of eons, of, of spirit, spirits coming from him, it. And one of them, at least, was wicked, Yahweh, foolish, stupid, and created that which is material. That's where we are today. That's what they think. Spirit is pure, matter is evil. These gods are emanations from the Almighty God, as I said. Gnosticism has no answer as to how they went about creating this continuum of evil and ultimately the evil material universe in which we are entrapped, but that's what they surmise. They don't say how, he just did, this foolish sub-god. Gnostics cannot reconcile how a good god like the one in the Old Testament could command people to fight wars of annihilation saying things like, I am a jealous god. That's what they say, is that there's no way, and you've heard this argument today, we've all heard it, is that how can you believe in a God who told Joshua, go in and wipe out all the Canaanites? How do you reconcile that? I mean, I I still get that question. I had a a guy wrote me one time on, uh, it was an old friend, I've known him since I was eight years old, he wrote me on um, 
LinkedIn one time, and, and he just railed on me. I mean, he, he was being sarcastic. I couldn't tell really where he was coming. He said, Walter, you're the smartest one of any of us. And this guy's brilliant, so for him to call anyone smart, I knew he was being sarcastic. You're the smartest one of any of us. You became one of those preachers. You're out there bilking people out of all their money, telling them lies. And I wrote back, I said, look, I believe this stuff. I give my life for it. I believe it. I'm not trying to bilk anybody. So he starts quoting all these passages out of their context, one of which is always, you can believe in a God that tells Joshua to go kill all those people? Well, sure I can. I have absolutely no problem with that. The Canaanites were the most wicked people on the planet. It was time for them to go. It was time for them to die. Same way we would say if a child molester or a rapist or a, a mass murderer is finally caught and they, they go down on death row, is any one of us sitting around going, man, that just ain't right. <laughs> it's justice is what it is. God allowed, even told Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, he said, I am allowing the sin of the Amorite, which is a group of people that includes the Canaanites, I'm allowing the sin of the Amorite to get to its fullest measure. And when it does, I'm going to wipe them out. So cannot God have justice on his people? And they were in his land, the promised land. I have no problem with that. And neither does that guy that wanted to so callously act like I didn't know what I was doing by believing that. You believe in justice too, don't you? Same as Mark. On over, Mark, you believe that, right? And then all of a sudden, cut off. And when I'm trying to write him back the third time, he had already cut off the friendship on LinkedIn. I couldn't get anything to him. That's just a coward. If you can't handle the fight, don't get in it. And I tell you what, some of these people have never been fought back with. Learn to fight back. That's what an apologist is. Most of these people don't have a clue what, they, what they're arguing about. Give them some good information, and then they're silent. Same is true with a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness. They come to your door. Argue with them. I don't mean red face, get a baseball bat out and threaten them. Have an argument back. They have no idea how to respond to that. They're not trained for that, nor do they go to any place where people know anything about what they're talking about anyway. If you do, you might convert them. At least you're planting a seed. So they, they say, and a jealous God. I mean, you've heard me give illustrations of a jealous God. Is, can, is it okay to be jealous? Is God that jealous God in heaven? Yes. He made us for Him. If we're giving our, our affections, thank you, Mark, to someone or something else, God's not that jealous girlfriend going, I'm not talking to you anymore, sort of thing. He's saying that I made you for me. And you're going out and you're giving your affections everywhere else. You are spiritual adulterers. I am a jealous God. You owe me. If my wife did that, was flirting with someone else and I was jealous, don't I have every right to do that? I would have every right. Or if it was vice versa, she would have every right. We belong to each other. And that's the affections that are, that are for each other. No one else. Yes, God's a jealous God. Amen. They didn't like that. Oh, this was bad. Matter is evil. He's a foolish sub-God. The goal, therefore, for the Gnostics is not salvation from sin, like ours is, but communion with the true spirit. Don't ask me what that means, because I don't know. This comes about through the pursuit of knowledge, and that's what the Greek word gnosis is. Hence, Gnostics. Gnosis. You've heard of an agnostic. That's not knowledge. And there it is. It comes from that Greek word. Certainly doesn't come from receiving Christ. Christ was a man. He was human. He's evil. He's matter. We got nothing to do with that. That's not. So a spiritual person might sound like you're on some sort of a, the same wavelength. You're not. You're better off with some pagan or an atheist than someone that says, oh, I'm spiritual. 
Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because they think they're higher than you. You poor thing. You're on the JV. You believe that matter is okay. We're up here spiritual. Poor thing. How can you tell us we have greater insight than you'll ever understand? Gnostics don't believe we can reduce true knowledge to some material. That would be evil. To material characters on material uh, an evil page like the Bible, rather direct communion with another pure spirit who is already has the true knowledge is our way of salvation. Well, how do you do that? Uh, you go into some transcendental meditation of some sort, get into some frenzy, some use drugs to do it. You remember the 60s? Some of you remember it. Some of you were so into it, you don't remember. <laughs> Today's spiritual person resembles this ancient Gnostic uh, heresy, also called the New Age. They seek wisdom. And you know the Greek word for wisdom? It's Sophia. Sophia is one of their goddesses. Seek Sophia. And the interesting thing, if you read Proverbs 8, Sophia is said to be, at least in the Greek version, the Septuagint, because it's written in Hebrew originally. But the Greek version has her name as Sophia. And Sophia was with God in the beginning. He's, she's always been there. So we go past Jesus to Sophia. She's female. Ah, now we've got our feminists as part of this movement. Hence, Jane Fonda, uh, Shirley MacLaine, um, all the others. Fortunately, some Gnostics did write down what they believed. Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, wrote a book called Against Heresies. We've looked at that, in which he described several varieties of Gnosticism and the books they wrote. Um, he was a disciple of Polycarp, who himself was a disciple of John. We remember him. And so he's writing against these heresies. That's one of the reasons or one of the ways that we know anything about this ancient thought. For hundreds of years, our only knowledge of these books was through the descriptions of people like Irenaeus. For hundreds of years. Centuries. However, in the 20th century, many Gnostic books were found in Egypt. Many at a city, a city called Nag Hammadi, down in Egypt. So they dug up, remember we found all those manuscripts of, uh, of the Old Testament and the Dead Sea? Same is true with the Nag Hammadi, which has become the Nag Hammadi Library out of Egypt. Uh, documents that were found include the Gospel of Thomas. You remember Thomas, right? The Apocryphon of John, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary, and many others. In fact, if you buy the, uh, the Gnostic uh, uh, the Gospels or just go online, you go to Amazon, Nag Hammadi Library, and you will find, you'll get a book. It's 900 pages long. Um, the recently published Gospel of Judas was found in the middle of Egypt in Middle Egypt in 1970. Here's a picture of some of the uh, the dug up remains of that life, that ancient library. And so, by reading these things, we know what they believed and what they tried to foist upon the Christian Church. It was a satanic effort, the, the efforts of Satan to try. Oh, he's always there. It's not so much what they say, but it's what it attacks. It's always, it's not so much, here's a, here's a bullet-pointed list of all that they believe. It's really a bullet-pointed list of everything it attacks. Jesus is not the Christ. He is evil. The God of the Old Testament is evil. We'll look at one of their main leaders in the early days next week. His name is Marcion. Uh, and Marcion decided to put together a canon of Scripture of, him, of his own books that he liked from the New Testament around A.D. 150, uh, which is very early, uh, of books he didn't like, Matthew, uh, Mark, and John. He liked Luke. Uh, he didn't like the Old Testament, so he got rid of the Old Testament. He liked some of Paul's letters, so he had 11 books in his canon. And so we know what he believed. We've got a lot of that evidence to see what Gnosticism attacks. Christianity. Montanism. Montanism. You might not know what Montanism is today, but when I start reading about it, you're going to say, oh, I see what it is in the modern day. Montanism comes from a man, Montanus. Uh, 
My old pastor said, yeah, remember, he was the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. (laughs) No, he existed long, long before Joe Montana. Montanism uh, was a movement also in that day. Uh, Montanus, a pagan priest of Sabel, converted to Christianity around AD 155. Um, living in, that should be Phrygia, not Phygia. Uh, Phrygia of Asia Minor, Montanus believed in three dispensations or eras. The dispensation of God the Father, of Jesus the Son, and the dispensation of God the Holy Spirit, which was his generation. He was like modern, a modern charismatic, believing he and his people had special powers. They spoke in tongues, interpreted prophecies, were called the pneumatikos. That's the Greek word for the spiritual. So what does that sound like? Our modern Pentecostal groups speaking in tongues. See, when you start speaking in tongues, you're saying things no one understands. So if you don't understand it, you have to ask somebody, what does that say? Well, here's what it means. I know what it means. Make it say whatever you want it to mean. The main problem, then as now, is we already have God's Word. So if you're getting more revelation and speaking it in a tongue, you're either A, saying what the Bible already says, in which case I don't need it, B, adding to the Bible, which is not good, C, taking away from the Bible, which is not good. Why do we need it? We don't. Jesus spoke in the language everyone could understand. God wants people to understand the language. Tongue speaking had a place. It was for someone to go into a place so that the gospel would spread quickly. They would speak a language they had never but learned so that the people they were, they were hearing could hear it and go spread the gospel. And the gospel spread early. Quickly, I should say, in the early days. And that gift fizzled out. What passes today is ridiculousness. But the Montanists... That's what they were into. And all of their strange doctrines that came out of that caused them to plunge. Based on Joel 2.28, which is what Peter quotes in Acts 2, they encouraged women to receive prophecies and to preach. Your women, old men, will see visions. Your young men, your, your young women will see visions and prophesy. That's what it's saying. That's what Joel 2.28 said. Well, it's fulfilled in our day, Mont- Montanus was saying. They set up their own prophets to replace the bishops of the day. Two women, Maximilla and Priscilla, left their husbands to preach with Montanus. Bishops were unsuccessful in their attempts to exercise their demons. They were moral people. They wore no makeup. They shunned worldly luxuries. They fasted regularly and sought to be martyrs. Sought it, calling it a blood baptism. We seek blood baptism. We want to die. Heroes for our faith. Montanus prophesied that Jesus' return was imminent and that he was about to return to Papuza in Phrygia where he would reign on the earth for a thousand years. There it is in Asia Minor. Did it happen? Eusebius, a church historian in the time of Constantine, quotes an older church historian of the day. Quote, a recent convert, Montanus by name, through his unquenchable desire for leadership, gave the adversary opportunity against him. And he became beside himself, which means he was a nutcase. And being suddenly in a sort of frenzy and ecstasy, he raved and began to babble and utter strange things, prophesying in a manner contrary to the constant custom of the church handed down by tradition from the beginning. Others imagining themselves possessed by the Holy Spirit and a prophetic gift were elated and not a little puffed up. The arrogant spirit taught them to revile the entire universal church under heaven. They call us the slayers of the prophets because we did not receive their loquacious prophets. Folks, that is so 
so similar to the modern charismatic Pentecost. That's what they believe. They are so puffed up. They have, they're the varsity, we're the junior varsity. Talking to them is, is like a child trying to talk to mom and dad. Doesn't happen very well. Doesn't work very well, I should say. Which brought on the idea of cessationism. The notion of cessation of the miraculous gifts probably dates from this time. 200 years later, Augustine states the cessationism. He states it clearly. Here's what he says. At the church's beginning, the Holy Spirit fell upon the believers, and they spoke with tongues unlearned, as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was a sign fitted to the time. The sign was given and then passed away. We no longer expect that those upon whom the hand is laid, that they may receive the Holy Spirit, will speak in tongues. So, in Augustine's day, people didn't even know what it was. And Augustine's saying, look, that's then. And Augustine lived in the 300s. So this is soon thereafter. So this is probably where cessationism began. People will ask, are, you, are we cessationists at Harvest Bible Church? We are not charismatic. We do not speak in tongues. If you speak in tongues, uh, I always say, keep it to yourself. Stay at the back. Don't wag your hands. Go back somewhere else. That's between you and God. But that is not welcome in this church. Well, wait a minute. You're, you're suppressing the Spirit of God. No, we're trying to suppress the devil from entering into your body is the main thing. If you don't know what you're saying and you fall into this frenzy, watch out. Stay alert. Uh, are we cessationists? First of all, I would say this, that God can... A cessation would mean that all the sign gifts of the Old Testament, working miracles, forming signs and wonders, speaking in tongues. Can God do that in the modern day? Of course He can. It's not a matter of whether God can. It's a matter of whether God does. Does He need to? Do we need it? Are we outright cessationists? No. I mean, there are stories in the mission field of, of missionaries going down in the jungles and speaking a language they never learned, and the gospel spreads. That's what it's for. But in the church today, for me to go off speaking in tongues, if I started doing that, that would be for one thing, for me to try to impress you. Oh, look at our pastor. He's filled with the Spirit. He's being slain in the Spirit. None of you would say that. All of you would leave. As well you should. Or come get me and take me to a hospital. But the fact that this goes on today, it's been going on for a long time. In fact, you will see that... Uh, uh, speaking in tongues and these kinds of miracles, it just kind of shows up in church history from time to time. It's never an ongoing uniform thing. But are we cessationists? Um, I, yes. I, I go ahead and say we are cessationists. Can it happen? Of course. Uh, is it normal? No. Should it be happening today? No, it should not. Um, God doesn't need me. If I had the gift um, of, of healing, or if you had the gift of healing, as some people think they do, I mean... I always say the same sarcastic thing is, why are you here? Go down to the children's hospital at the, at, the, at the med center and empty that place out. Anyone truly with that gift is going to be healing people. What are you doing here? Uh, I read a, a, a documentary of a guy one time. He said, yeah, early on I thought that I had the gift of healing. I was told I probably have the gift of healing. He said, and I lived with myself thinking I have the gift of healing. He said, I never really thought about what that actually meant. He said, but the more I nourished it in my soul, he said, the more I became influenced by the devil. It was his own testimony. He said, I began to believe these things until someone came and told me, kind of what I'm saying now is, no, that's not of God. If you don't know what you're saying and you're babbling a bunch of garbage, how do you know you're not blaspheming God in a different language? I don't know that. Well, then don't do it. So cessationism, we believe, sprung out of this time period. 
Um, Tertullian himself, which is unbelievable, converted to Montanism. Uh, one of the heavy-hitting fathers of our faith. Had his own reasons, but uh, you know, I, I would imagine that no matter how brilliant you are, when you taste something that you think is of the Holy Spirit, you feel it, it's hard to, uh, to argue with people and their feelings. Well, you can't tell me that I didn't feel that. Well, I'm not saying you didn't feel it, but are feelings really the test of truth? Are they? If you do something and it feels good, does that make it right? Sex before marriage, that feels good, but that's called adultery, punishable by death in the Old Testament. Doing uh, illegal drugs, I've never done it, but that, that sounds like it feels good. People I've known look like they're having a pretty good time. Drunkenness, going in a, getting in your, your GT Mustang and flying down the highway 120 miles an hour. I had a GT, I never went that fast, but that looked fun. I wanted to do that. If I do it, I'll have a wreck and be crippled the rest of my life. I know that that would happen, but just because it feels good doesn't make it right. And in this kind of theology, people say, well, it felt good. I know it was of God. You can't tell me otherwise. Tertullian on ad- adultery. In Tertullian's day, the church was debating whether a person who commits adultery can be forgiven. The bishop of Rome said yes. Tertullian said no. Virtue, he says, is now become so obsolete that purity is thought of as the moderation of moderation of lust, not its complete renunciation. And he is considered to be sufficiently chaste who is not too unchaste. An edict has been issued. The Pontifex Maximus issues this pronouncement. I forgive sins of adultery and fornication to those who have performed penance. Far from the bride of Christ be such a proclamation. This book, therefore, will be directed against the sensualists. It will moreover oppose an opinion which I formerly held while in their company. So he's railing against the idea of the Pope forgiving people and saying, yeah, 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 you made a mistake, move on. Not Tertullian. So the last wave, uh, the last and the greatest of the persecution of Christians occurred during Diocletian's reign. um, And he reigns from uh, 302, or actually 284 to 302, 303. In this persecution, the Romans sought to destroy the Holy Scriptures, and they did in addition to destroying Christians. And uh, I've never been able to quite uh, find out if it's true or not, but it said, this is a picture of Diocletian, uh, that his wife was a Christian. Um, not, I'm not quite sure. I mean, some say absolutely, some are not sure. But uh, in order to get rid of all the Christians, he would have had to kill his wife. He divided the power of the emperors, that he, and he named two emperors. Uh, they were called Augustus, and two junior emperors he called Caesars. And here they are. Here's the, the breaking up of the empire there. The Latin-speaking part of the empire uh, there in the, in the west. Um, each had an emperor or a, an Augustus and a Caesar. And in the east side, an Augustus and a Caesar. He was one of those. Augustus, Caesar, Augustus, Caesar. Uh, his persecution of Christians began in February of 303. He began to issue a series of edicts directed against Christianity. And it lasted about 10 years. The destruction of churches, uh, the abolition of all the scriptures that, was, that existed throughout the entire empire, all worship was banned, and everyone who didn't was killed, imprisonment of all clergy, and then later of all Christians. Remember, they began these, these edicts, and so they just got worse and worse. They were released if they were able to sacrifice to the gods, if they would make a sacrifice to the gods, but he killed most of them. Uh, he was among the worst of the worst in those persecutions. 
So the times of major persecutions we see under uh, various people that we know from church history, Ignatius, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Perpetua and Felicity, Sanctus, Blandina, and Attalus, uh, Novatius, Cyprian, Donatism uh, comes up out of that. But the basic, you just see the, in the pink, it happened short time, long time, short time, not empire-wide, uh, but it did happen. Donatism, after the persecution under Diocletian ended, Donatus accused Sicilian, Bishop of Carthage, of handing over the scriptures in order to avoid martyrdom. Um, incidentally, uh, later after the persecution, because immediately after um, Diocletian passed, um, Constantine became an emperor. He employed Eusebius and to write 100 copies, it was either 50 or 100 copies of scripture. And so scriptures were, were able to come back together. Did Eusebius invent them? No, they, they, they weren't all taken uh, here's the interesting thing about the scriptures. Whatever scriptures were there, whatever scriptures that, that, that were had, it, they weren't in a bound copy like I'm holding right in my hand. But the early church fathers, from Polycarp to Ignatius to Justin, these men, and, and other names that we've not heard of, that I've not introduced to you, they were quoting the Bible at such length that you could get rid of every copy of the New Testament that ever existed under Diocletian, if you, if you did. And all you got to do, you can assemble every verse in the New Testament, save 11 verses, by simply quoting the church fathers. Isn't that beautiful? So you just throw all the scriptures you want. The church fathers have been quoting them for hundreds of years now, and we go back and we can find everything that, that Paul wrote, Peter wrote, Jesus said. Isn't that great? So Diocletian, after, after he, he died, it, after it ended, Donatus accused Sicilian, the bishop of Carthage, of handing over the scriptures in order to avoid martyrdom. Would you do that? Here, here I have a copy of Paul's letters to three churches. Here, I'll give you this if you can spare my life. What, what life is worth living having handed over the Holy Scriptures to be burned? Oh, I escaped with my, my brief life. Ah, it's, it's amazing. Donatus seceded and set up a rival church in North Africa that would separate the wheat from the tares. He appealed to the new Christian emperor Constantine to recognize his church as the true church. Constantine said, I'll pass. Constantine opposed Donatus and outlawed Donatism. Donatus became an anti-imperial movement and sponsored terrorist activities against the Roman government. So we'll get more into that. We haven't even touched Constantine, uh, but Constantine is one of the five most important people in the history of the world. And so uh, I'm not going to gloss over him. So finally, look at there, finally, I still got time. Finally, just look at your, the outline. This is the timeline of what we have, church history up to this time. We've, we've seen Peter, Paul, Andrew, John, and the book of Acts. What follows on here, their heels are Clement of Rome, not Clement of Alexandria. That's a different one. Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias. Later from there, you've got, and you see the overlap of the lines. They knew each other. Uh, any, any overlap of the, not the dotted line, but the, the, the solid line, they knew each other. Irenaeus, Tertullian. Hippolytus, Origen, Cyprian. And then over here we'll get into Anthony, Eusebius, and Athanasius. Athanasius, another one of the great heroes of the faith after the, the Edict of Milan. Now you would think that after, he, after Constantine says, okay, no more persecution of Christians, that we're all going to live happily ever after. But what is worse? A church that's being persecuted and purged of all the, the tares or a place filled with people that call themselves Christians? The latter for sure. I mean, the real church is the persecuted church. And we'll see that as we go. Uh, excuse me? Which one did I say? 
the church that's persecuted? Yeah, that would be the form. If I said that, then I meant the form. Did I say the latter? All right, let me go back. Etch a sketch that out. <laughs> Thanks, Don. Let's, uh, let's pray. I'll let you go. Lord, we thank you for our time. Thank you for giving us this time for the history of the church, the good, the bad, and the ugly. May we come away with something that we can um, cling to. What's happened in the past continues to happen today. May we uh, be reminded that you are in control. Always have been, always will be. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. Thank you.